As we watch the characters in the new Jillian Fellows series, The Gilded Age, whose first season has just premiered on HBO, for those of us who spend a lot of time training our gilded spectacles on the period, it's been fascinating to see the on-screen portrayals of real-life movers and shakers like Mrs. Astor, Ward McAllister, and Stanford White. But it's more fun to try to figure out on whom or on what parts of whom various other characters are built. Perhaps, for many of us, one of the most fun to watch, since we really don't know what she will do next in her climb to the top, is the fearless, domineering, deeply focused, and unrelenting Bertha Russell. Bertha, along with her husband George, are outsiders, well, well, at the moment, in that tightly controlled gilded world, and it's pretty clear that she will not stop sledgehammering her way into the coveted center of society. It's also pretty clear, if we look closely, that in many ways, her real-life counterpart and social sister may well have been inspired, at least in part, by the controversial, social-scaling, relentless domestic dictator, Alva Vanderbilt. Alva, it has been said, was responsible for nearly single-handedly putting the whole Vanderbilt clan on the social map, and her beginnings in a genteel southern world led her to end up, if not overtaking Mrs. Astor, certainly running parts of the show in the next lane. The real story of Alva, who she was, what motivated her, it's complicated, and perhaps she is written off too easily and too simplistically. She was not simple, and the stories about her are jaw-dropping, cringeworthy in some cases, but they're memorable. In this show, I want to take a look a little bit more deeply into who she really was, as much as we can possibly know, and what she really had to fight against, and what it cost her, and what she really gained in the end. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Join me every two weeks for a look beneath the glitter in the gold of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. There was a palpable feeling of excitement and anticipation in most corners of the city on the morning of November 6, 1895. The pews of St. Thomas Episcopal Church on 5th Avenue and 53rd Street were shortly going to be completely full. Guests had begun filing into the church well before the appointed hour to make sure their view of the altar was as unobstructed as possible. In order to even get into the church, you had to navigate the growing crowds, some said over 5,000 outside, that required a police presence to hold back the overexcited and cheering New Yorkers. There was a stir in the crowd as the governor of New York, Levi Morton, and his wife entered the church and made their way up the aisle. Sir Julian Ponsfort, the British ambassador, had arrived and was ceremoniously seated in front of the governor. Various noted families began a series of entrances with names that, of course, had regularly filled the papers and society lists. The Jays, the Elliots, the Galays, the Rutledges, the Shattucks, the Prestons, and the Porters were all called out by the New York Times with descriptions of their attire. The most notable entrance was, of course, orchestrated to create a spectacle. 
Shortly on the heels of the governor's entrance, Mrs. Astor herself entered with her son, John Jacob Astor IV, and his wife, and was seated as all eyes followed the party to their seats. She was dressed exquisitely, reported the Times, in a coat of gray with a black toque with white satin rosettes. The orchestra, under the direction of Walter Damrosch, began a program of classical music to entertain the guests beginning at 11.30, although the organist at St. Thomas's had begun playing at 10.30, by which time many of the guests had already arrived and been seated. This was a wedding after all, and according to many, the most important wedding New York society had ever seen. The stakes were certainly the highest. With the same unrestrained anticipation and excitement of today's royal weddings, much of New York's population had followed every detail from the bride's dress to the vibrant and deeply colored descriptions of the decorations in the church, every inch it seems to have been covered in flowers, to the movements of the bride and the groom leading up to that day. Just thinking about it all led many in the city to forget their dreary days and live in an imagined fairy tale. But make no mistake, this was no fairy tale. At noon, the official hour of the ceremony, the doors opened and the mother of the bride made her way up the aisle escorted by her sons. This was a day for which that particular mother of the bride, Alva Vanderbilt, had waited, planned, and manipulated countless people and events for months. Alva Vanderbilt's daughter, Consuelo, was about to marry Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. Consuelo, in about 30 minutes' time, was to become his duchess. This was not a love match, and perhaps the saddest part of this story was that that was no secret. This was a masterful Machiavellian plan of social manipulation to guarantee status and social position. As the chimes rang out and the clock ticked past noon, not only the guests in the pews, but Alva herself became agitated. Alva had left her home on East 72nd Street in advance of her daughter. Consuelo was late. She was meant to be driven by carriage to the church with her father as her escort. Neither father, nor daughter, nor carriage had arrived, or could even be seen in the distance further up the avenue. Was Consuelo simply not going to show up at the altar? After nearly 30 minutes of anguished anticipation, the crowds began to cheer and Consuelo's carriage arrived at the stoop of the church. She had spent the morning in tears, and her maids had to help pull her together, even though her red, tear-stained face was visible through her veil. In so many ways, Alva Vanderbilt had seemingly devoted her life to her daughter, raising her, training her to be the most perfect princess in order to manifest an international aristocratic match that would ensure a title and cement Alva's position herself as remaining at the center of the social sphere insulated from any possible scandal that could arise. This wedding, you could say, was all about Alva. But who was Alva Vanderbilt? Stories proliferate, and not to worry, I'll share a few. Stories of her ruthless climb to bring her to the center of society that didn't really want her. Her story is not an easy one, and in fact, this show will focus on the first part of her story. I will do a follow-up in the coming months to focus on the rest of her story following the wedding. But, for the moment, let me pour a nice cup of tea right here. I hope you will too. And let's start at the beginning. 
Alva Vanderbilt loved nothing more than a good fight ever since childhood. Stories were recounted that as a girl, she preferred the company of boys, and should any of them attempt to tease her for any reason, or worse, imply that she wasn't as strong, or as important, or as worthy as they, Alva would resort to her punches, initiate a struggle, and more often than not, win. She had an aggressive, combustible, argumentative personality from the start. Alva, even as a child, loved to scream. In some writings describing her own life, she states, There was a force in me that seemed to compel me to do what I wanted to do, regardless of what might happen afterwards. I have known this condition all my life. Alva Erskine Smith was born in the middle of January on January 17, 1853, in the wealthy southern port of Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, a stately city of gracious European-influenced homes, was an important center for the cotton trade. Alva came from a family of plantation owners, and her father's business was as a respected and prosperous cotton merchant, and it must be said it was a business fueled by the labor of enslaved people. Despite the will that showed itself from her earliest years, it seems that Alva's rough edges could be countered with a fascination with ornaments and delicate details of a room. She loved the elegant architectural accents of her own home that showed a whisper of a long-ago style lifted from the Renaissance and the courts of France. To counter her stubborn nature, even she herself as an adult recounted how much she loved to play with dolls and how much she liked to infuse them, as she explained it, with the personalities of her own choosing and direction. She knew what it was like to grow up in an atmosphere of wealth and power such as it was in the antebellum South. Alva liked to remind people that she was not stashed away in nurseries with only the company of governesses, but rather allowed to spend time openly with her parents, particularly her father, and be present for discussions of business. In her book, The Husband Hunters, Anne de Courcy suggests, one could say, that if times were different, that she would have made a great corporate warrior on Wall Street by the end of the century. Determined, focused, brilliantly strategic, and cold. Only she, at least for quite some time, wouldn't have that kind of fortune to play with. And she was a woman. She particularly disliked being limited to the constraints of what being a girl meant in mid-century society. She was the seventh of nine children, only five of which lived to adulthood. She resented the male-dominated world that she saw all around her, and she was attuned to the nuance of inequality between the sexes. Having grown up with the deaths of her brother and sisters, she was infuriated when her brother died and her father seemed to put more weight on that loss than the sad deaths of her infant sisters, since a male heir was now gone. Alva's parents, Murray Smith and his wife, Phoebe, along with Alva and the rest of the family, came to New York in 1859. New York was a strong market for cotton, at least before the devastation of the Civil War changed all that. As the war began just a couple of years after their arrival, it became less desirable for Southerners to remain in New York, and Murray's plan, like many others, was to begin to establish a regular base in Europe, and in the Smiths' case, like many others, in France. The aftermath of the Civil War became devastating for Alva's father, and he moved the family to England in 1866 to try to re-establish his footing in Liverpool, a center for the British cotton trade. Their next stop was to move on to Paris, and the family rented an apartment on the Champs-Élysées, and Alva was enrolled in a French school, and she became more immersed in French design and sensibility. 
The refinement and beauty of France and its culture captivated Elva. She learned to speak French fluently, and she and her family were admitted to parties, balls, and galas in the court of Napoleon III and his glamorous wife, the Empress Eugenie. The French cared little for the social rankings of Americans. It was enough to be elegantly dressed, speak intelligently on a variety of subjects, and be well-versed in arts and culture. She had a unique fascination with the details of architecture and could endlessly gaze at facades, balconies, and entrances, memorizing all their details and contemplating her own adjustments to their design. It has been suggested that Alva, in a combination of hard business talent and the nuance for how to fit aesthetic details together, in addition to a deep appreciation for the classical elements, it's been suggested that she would have made a skilled architect herself, but not in these male-dominated times. The Smith family returned to New York in 1869 when anti-Southern sentiment had tempered a bit, but the city that they found shocked them in its appearance and its reception. Alva described herself as brokenhearted at leaving France and described the America now at her feet as crude and raw. The new tide was rising of moneymakers, and even by the late 1860s, the influence of these invaders was being felt with grand new mansions, replacing the staid, soldier-like brownstones, and they were now filled with bustling servants and expensive furnishings everywhere. But it was a city in which Alva and her family no longer fit. They had left the graceful, elegant Knickerbocker New York and returned to a harsh arena with a new brash financial culture dictating status and new social arbiters in place to determine who could pass between the Golden Gates and who could not. In 1871, as many feel the real Gilded Age really began, Alva was dealt two significant blows that determined her future. One, in the post-Civil War reconstructed world, her father's business began to seriously fail. It seems he perhaps didn't possess the iron paws required to wrestle with the new business elite, and consequently, the Smiths were forced to move to smaller and smaller houses in a series of moves downtown, as opposed to the clear direction of society, uptown. For Alva also that year, the most personal blow occurred when her mother died at age 48. Alva had not always had the smoothest relationship with her own mother, whom Alva reported could, as a child, whip her with a riding crop if she deemed necessary, but she was the strongest female role model that Alva had. And at age 18, in a better world, she would be entering society, or at least the old one. But now, with no mother and her father's shaky financial status, Alva was alone and untethered. Her only choice was to go deep harness that indestructible determination and find the most solid base she could, or felt that was available to her once again, accepting the control of a man, and that was to marry, but marry money. A lot of it. While the lofty walls of Mrs. Astor's society were unscalable, the social circle of its youngest members, the sons and daughters of those who had made it under the velvet rope, was not. Young people, then as now, are often more inclined to have a little bit of fun and bend or just ignore some of the rules. Alva felt accepted in this set, which included one of her old friends, Consuelo Iznaga, another girlhood chum with Southern roots, the daughter of a wealthy Cuban diplomat and a legacy of plantation owners. 
At one particular gathering, Consuelo, whose name Alva was to give to her own firstborn daughter, introduced her to William Kissam Vanderbilt, the grandson of the great and famous Commodore. The Vanderbilts, a large family whose roots in New York went back to the 17th century, were most definitely barred from the gilded gates, at least in Mrs. Astor's book. Their money, coming from the wily purchases and consolidation of railroad networks, was too new. Despite the fact that the family went back to earlier centuries, the criteria for social admittance was that a fortune had to go back as well. In addition, the Commodore, whose current fortune this was, and at this point no one was really quite sure how much it was, he was rough around the edges, rough as they come, and had no interest in polishing his personal presentation for anyone. Take it or leave it. Mrs. Astor declined. But here was his grandson, Willie Kay, as he was known, young, energetic, quite handsome, photos attest, and, well, sooner or later, would land a substantial fortune himself, which would likely do nicely, thank you very much. Alva and Willie saw something in each other that they wanted and needed. They shared a European education and a love of all things French. They both spoke it fluently. But Willie admired the pure drive that Alva had and determination to establish a place in society where she no longer would be forced to defer to it, but she herself instead could dictate how the pieces were moved on the chessboard. Alva, of course, fully well realized the opportunity at hand of marrying into a family with money that was now significant, but had a chance to grow. For many accounts, the association of Willie Kay and Alva was no love match. So many of these tales are not of romance. It was perhaps an unspoken business deal, the usefulness of which, by the time of their daughter Consuelo's wedding in 1895, nearly 20 years later, had burned itself out and resulted in anger and infidelity. But Willie Kay, at 26, and Alva, at 22, married in 1875 at Calvary Episcopal Church near the shade and shadow of Old New York's Gramercy Park. Beginning with her wedding, Alva shot an arrow from her quiver and began to harness the power of the press to get what she wanted. She was the first in New York to distribute admission cards to attendees. No card, no admittance, thereby creating a highly sought-after guest list. Willie and Alva were young, attractive, and ready to take on the fight together. Alva was known to say that her two projects in life were building mansions and building children building a supportive, loving partnership, perhaps not so much. Amanda Mackenzie Stewart, in her brilliant dual biography, Consuelo and Alva, shares a quote from Alva herself. You cannot help your children to advantage through sentimental romance, but through money, which alone has power. Another point in determining Alva's success at this point was that she got along, even famously it could be said, with not only Willie's father, William Henry Vanderbilt, but the great Commodore himself. They mutually admired each other's direct style. The great Commodore died in 1877, and from this moment the Vanderbilt brand began to gather steam and began to crack the walls of Mrs. Astor's society. After his death, and in his will, it became evident that Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, a Staten Island boy who once ferried people to Manhattan with his own sail power, had left a legacy of $100 million, and today, that is in the neighborhood of over $2 billion. He was quite simply 
the richest man in America. It's funny how people tend to forget things and suddenly throw down the welcome mat when a fortune crops up out of nowhere. Willie Kay's piece of the pie, or at least this particular pie, was $3 million, which in today's money was a bit north of $50 million, which was enough to catapult Alva and her husband into Fifth Avenue prominence. The first thing Alva insisted on doing was to create a home. But not just a home. She wanted a palace that no one could ignore. It was her chance to build a French chateau of her own vision and design on Fifth Avenue. As Fifth Avenue continued its march towards Central Park and the rich marched along with it, there was no more visible stage to build your set. In the years following her marriage, Alva had stretched her building muscles by working with the noted architect Richard Morris Hunt to build Idle Hour, a faux English Tudor country estate out in Islip, Long Island, where Willie could play country gentleman and her children could have some sort of freedom from the constraints of the city. But now, she was serious. It was time to bring it all up a notch. She collaborated again with Richard Morris Hunt to create what was called her Petit Chateau on the corner of 5th Avenue and 52nd Street. The Petit Chateau allowed her to pull on every aspect of her love of French architecture and to create a mansion unlike any other New York had ever seen. Why, if you didn't know any better, you'd think you were in the Loire Valley. Her chateau had a turret, balconies, gargoyles, and flying buttresses flying to nowhere. In order to really compete, and I hope it's clear by now that Alva always loved a challenge, it wasn't enough just to build a palace. You had to make sure everyone saw it. And to accomplish that goal, she added two points to her strategic plan. One, throw the most over-the-top party New York had seen up to that point, and two, the morning of said party, invite a few choice media reporters over for, you know, some coffee and nice muffins, and let them wander all over your house and take pictures and make notes and descriptions of its sumptuousness that could be syndicated nationwide the next day. The plan for her ball was to be a costume ball, which of course required specially made gowns, trains, headpieces, capes, and accessories for the women, and an entire array of tunics, doublets, tights, sheaths for swords, boots, and more capes for the men. And don't forget the jewels. Alva was strategic in her plan. Cast the widest net that you could. Each guest was a mouthpiece to promote the grandeur of her home. She sends 1,600 invitations, although it seems that just about 1,000 or a few under actually showed up. Invite royalty, or as close as you can get to it, or with something that looks like it. New York society was utterly seduced by titles following the 1875 wedding of Jenny Jerome to Lord Randolph Churchill. Alva's old friend Consuelo, who had introduced Willie to her, had married a British aristocrat and was now in line to become a duchess when her husband's father passed on the title. All New York would accept. I mean, just to rub elbows, which is probably what happened, given the number of attendees, with a duchess-to-be. All this left the problem of Mrs. Astor. She couldn't be invited, yet she's the one Alva wanted to impress the most. Social rules were clear. Mrs. Astor had to call on Alva in order to be known and thus accepted. 
A call could be a real sit-down visit, only 10 minutes or so, or it could be a liveried footman appearing at your door with a calling card. That counted, too. Neither had happened, so Mrs. Astor remained off Alva's list. Apparently, so the most often-told version of the story goes, Mrs. Astor's daughter Carrie wanted desperately to attend the ball and had even been rehearsing one of the quadrille dances with her friends to be performed that night. Caroline Astor, wearing the coronet of motherhood rather than social queen, evidently acquiesced to support her daughter and sent the aforementioned footman up Fifth Avenue to deliver one of her cards at the portals of Le Chateau Vanderbilt. Shortly thereafter, it seemed another footman appeared at the Astor portals with an invitation for the ball. Mrs. Astor indeed appeared on the night of March 26, 1883, dressed in dark blue velvet with diamonds at her neck, on her wrists and fingers, and around her waist. It was often said that she could resemble a walking chandelier. Guests that night appeared as Mary Stewart, Louis XIV, Little Bo Peep, Queen Elizabeth, but perhaps the showstopper of all was a gown made of gold thread worn by Alice Vanderbilt, Alva's sister-in-law, meant to represent electric light. The new thing, you know. Alice even carried a battery-powered torch that she could light up as she walked around. Upon entering, this fantasy cast made their way up the grand staircase to greet Alva dressed as a Venetian princess in white satin embroidered with gold and Consuelo as an image from a Van Dyke painting. From the buffet to the dancing, guests took in the splendor of the Vanderbilt Chateau. Alva had engaged a French firm to send bits of architectural salvage over to give her home real Renaissance fireplaces, real Tudor mantles, and Baroque French paneling. The art on the walls included works by Rembrandt, Gainsborough, one even that graced Madame de Pompadour's bedroom at Versailles, and even furniture that once belonged to Marie Antoinette. Some thought all of this was just too too, well, too much. Edith Wharton, who it's actually possible but unconfirmed, was there that night, sniffed at this kind of thing, and once wrote of Vanderbilt taste, I wish the Vanderbilts didn't retard culture so very thoroughly. They are entrenched in a sort of thermopylae of bad taste from which apparently no force on earth can dislodge them. With her ball and her house, Alva had hands down won the fight at hand for social visibility and was well on her way to winning the battle. She had, in fact, begun to change the look of Fifth Avenue with her architectural faux French chateau. Others would follow suit, and she had entirely raised the bar on how much you had to spend to throw a good party. She had also positioned the entire Vanderbilt clan, including her father-in-law, as the next incarnations of the Medici princes. And most of all, she'd gotten Mrs. Astor to accept her and show up. Bullseye. It's time to take a brief break right now, just so I can fill my own teacup, don't you know? And we will be right back. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of The Gilded Gentleman, and today we are delving into the life and times of Alva Vanderbilt. 
Willie Kay's father, William Henry, died December 8th, 1885, just two years after the ball. And it was revealed that he, in fact, had doubled his father's fortune, and it was now $200 million. And after various divisions and trusts and distributions, the part coming to Willie Kay as a major heir was just about $1.3 billion in today's money. Alva could not have been more pleased. Another point in Society's Crown was to have a box at the opera, and this was a stickier point since New York's main opera house was the Academy of Music down on 14th Street, built in the mid-1850s, and despite a seating capacity of nearly 4,000, it only had 18 box seats on either side of the stage. A box seat is what you wanted, so that the audience could actually spend the performance admiring you and your finery, instead of wasting time worrying about following some convoluted opera plot on the stage. The boxes had long been held by the old Knickerbocker families and handed down. This was one jarring instance where no amount of money could seemingly wriggle one loose. Alva got mad. The only choice here, and the one seconded by other families, Morgans, Goulds, and several Vanderbilts, was to just go uptown, use up some Vanderbilt land and some cash, along with some others, and build a whole new opera house so that they could all occupy as many boxes as they wanted. I refer you, my friends, to my show Divas, Diamonds, and Drama for that story, because all of that is just exactly what they did. After the ball, Willie was now effortlessly accepted into the best men's clubs, and he took a portion of this new infusion of inheritance, and he purchased a yacht he named the Alva. Just to be clear, this yacht required a crew of over 50, a capacity on board of over 80, and included eight guest rooms and a 10-room suite just for Willie and Alva. But a yacht was a status symbol of the new elite, and Mrs. Astor's husband, William... J.P. Morgan and Jay Gould all had them. More on yachts in just a moment. Alva was itchy. She'd made a pretty good foothold in New York, but she still needed to make a statement in Newport, which, as you all know, was just Fifth Avenue sur mer. For Alva's 39th birthday, Willie Kay footed the bill for a brand new mansion in Newport, the famed Marble House, built predominantly of European marble, including exquisite blocks of red, pink, and yellow Italian marble. Alva immediately enlisted once again Richard Morris Hunt to create an overall design of the mansion reminiscent of the Petit Trianon at Versailles, long one of Alva's most treasured inspirations. Allard and sons from Paris who had contributed to the Petit Chateau on Fifth Avenue contributed details of these interiors too. The Grand Salon, which served as a ballroom, included further design elements from Versailles, and Alva included what she called the Gothic Room for her collection of medieval and Renaissance decorative arts. Ceilings throughout the house included those from 18th century France and Italy, and on and on. While Willie had his yacht, and Alva had her house, which by the way took four years in the planning and construction, none of this meant that things were well in the marriage. In fact, quite the opposite. The bond between them forged from an allied goal of assaulting and conquering the social hierarchy to achieve acceptance and position had gone. They had arrived. While not exactly toppling Mrs. Astor, Alva's efforts had at least gotten the Vanderbilts into the mix and onto Ward McAllister's lists. 
They had produced three children, an heir, William Kissam Jr., and a daughter, Consuelo, who would be the most desirable heiress in America. Anything they wanted, they could either buy or build. Willie began to philander, which is, sad to say, often typical for fellow husbands of Gilded Age elite. His yacht became the vehicle for Trist's affairs and liaisons, off at sea and away from the press or other inquisitive personalities. There was even talk that Willie Kay was having a long-standing affair with Alva's old friend Consuelo, now the Duchess of Manchester, whose own marriage proved unfulfilling and deeply lonely. Alva knew things were going on, but had become deeply frustrated at the choices her coveted society told her that she had. Divorce was considered scandalous and could send you straight back to the starting square on the game board or get kicked out of the game, period. A round-the-world cruise in which Alva and Willie had taken Consuelo, some say, as a final attempt to help their marriage, it ended as the boat docked in Nice in late January of 1894. Consuelo was told that her parents' marriage was over. Alva immediately picked up Consuelo and went north to settle in Paris for the time being. Now every fiber of her body trained on the final grooming of Consuelo to marry a British aristocrat. In Alva's mind, having a duke in the family was the best insurance possible for continued social acceptance regardless of what scandal a divorce or other gossip would produce. Alva's branding campaign included a new portrait commissioned of Consuelo in Paris by the famed portrait painter Carolus Duran. Instead of the usual velvet backdrop, Alva instructed the painter to paint Consuelo as an 18th century English lady with a landscape background coming down a flight of steps. Her point was to make her daughter as indistinguishable from a Gainsborough portrait as possible. And while she was in Paris, Alva arranged for Consuelo to make her official debut at one of the elegant Ball Blanc, during which each debutante was presented in a stunning white gown. Consuelo was a gentle, introspective, intelligent child that throughout her childhood had been a prisoner of sorts under Alva's dictatorial mothering. Alva famously told Consuelo not to try to think. I do all the thinking for you. And she chose everything she wore, everything she read, everything she was taught, and every object in her bedroom, and everyone she was allowed to see. One of the hardest-to-believe stories today was one, told by Consuelo herself in her memoir, of her mother's practice of strapping her to an iron rod with a belt around the head and another around the waist that Consuelo was forced to wear during her lessons at home in order to promote the straightest and most regal posture possible. Moving on to London, Alva orchestrated a meeting with good old Minnie Stevens from New York, now transformed through another transatlantic marriage into Lady Paget. Lady Paget had landed in London and reinvented herself as a kind of international marriage broker, and this proved the final key. Minnie had the connections to bring Consuelo and Alva into the presence of the Duke of Marlborough, a quiet, handsome enough young man whose foundering Blenheim fortunes could certainly be shored up by one of America's penny princesses. It was the Duke Alva selected for Consuelo. Beginning with a lunch, again orchestrated by Minnie and evolving into a series of outings, dinners, receptions, and balls, Consuelo and the Duke began to be seen in public together. 
In the summer of 1895, the following year, Alva invited the Duke to visit Newport for the summer season once again. No matter what people said about your marriage, they will show up if you are entertaining a Duke at your house. Alva always claimed to raise her children to be independent thinkers, but that idea seems to have been lost in translation somewhere along the line. Despite Consuelo's best efforts, it was Alva who controlled it all. When Consuelo, in a moment of adolescent rebellion, announced to Alva that she was in love with the young Winthrop Rutherford and that she intended to marry him, Alva rejected any such idea and allowed Consuelo to believe that the news had caused a serious heart attack and been a risk to her health. Alva had faked it, of course, to instill guilt into Consuelo over the idea of marriage to someone of her own choosing. On a September evening following dinner in Marble House, the Duke asked Consuelo to join him in the Gothic room and asked her to be his duchess. She accepted, completely aware that she felt no love for him, and he certainly none for her. In some ways, it was like her parents' own marriage years before. This was a business deal, although an extremely public one, and one in which Consuelo had no power to specify her own terms. Even Consuelo's young 12-year-old brother is reported to have blurted out, he only wants you for your money. Willie Kay made a wedding settlement with the Marlboros. The Marlboros would have their own infusion of American cash in the form of railway shares valued at over $60 million in today's money. Alva would have a solid gold aristocrat to fend off any social criticism, but of course, all this left Consuelo with not much of anything. The date for the wedding was set for November 6th, and now a skilled and practiced PR agent, Alva began spinning details of the preparation to a hungry press. Details of the dress, intimate descriptions of the lingerie, yes, her wedding garters were gold, as were the clasps on her corset, yes, the wedding dress was in cream white satin accented by traditional orange blossoms and was being made here in New York by Alva's dressmaker. Ever the publicity machine, Alva chose some samples of fabric and items from the trousseau and sent them directly to Vogue so that they could be sketched and a full spread article would soon be published. As we return to that center aisle of St. Thomas on that November day, the wedding ceremony that opened this episode is now underway. Consuelo's tears were hidden, well, almost, by the five-foot lace veil. Consuelo had made her way slowly up the aisle and took her place next to her duke, both staring straight ahead and not looking at each other as the ceremony progressed. Vows said the bride and groom proceeded into the vestry to sign the marriage register in the presence of Consuelo's father as well as the British ambassador and the British consul general. Once Willie Kay's signature was on the document, his part done, the bride's father left quietly through a side door and it's presumed headed off to his club. As the Duke of Marlborough and his Duchess reappeared on the chancel steps, no doubt Alva Vanderbilt let her shoulders drop and she let out a sigh. It is done. And done it was, as the New York Times headline ran the next morning. She is a duchess. Alva had, in her mind, with steely reserve, she had overcome the genteel poverty imposed upon her as a result of her father's disintegrating business. She'd overcome the effect of the death of her mother. She had insulated herself with Vanderbilt cash to prove to society that she deserved pride of place. And she had achieved the greatest insurance policy of them all. 
her daughter, renouncing her American citizenship, had become a British aristocrat. And truthfully, the story of Elva and Consuelo together is not over. And for that, I must ask you to wait for a bit to an episode to take the story much further beyond this wedding to its conclusion. Elva continued her acts of rebellion against a male-dominated society which had to this point dramatically confined the rights of women. In the decades ahead, she was to harness her aggressive nature, iron will, and coffers of cash to finally, in the end, create positive change in the evolving political progressive movement for not only herself, but for fellow women. But for now, at this moment in 1895, she likely collected herself, adjusted her hat, and walked back down the aisle and into her carriage as it left to return home to entertain her guests at the wedding breakfast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Gilded Gentleman. Please join me every two weeks for a new show. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com backslash The Gilded Gentleman. Your support directly helps me create the show from research to editing to production. I could not do it without your support. And if you've enjoyed this show, please leave a review as your calling card, and I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?